he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not of yourselves, it is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. Dello Adhesive in Germany makes the strongest glues in the world. In 2019, they used one teaspoon of their monopox glue. By the way, maybe a different name, monopox, that sounds bad. Maybe in German it sounds better, but their monopox glue, they used one teaspoon And that was enough to lift a truck weighing 38,000 pounds off the ground with a crane, and they held it there for an hour, setting a Giddis world record. Quite a feat for a little bit of glue. Don't spill that on your hands, right? In the opening chapters of this wonderful letter, Paul talks about what a great feat salvation is. Uh, He's talking about its amazing scope. Uh, past and present and future and all that God has accomplished through his salvation. As he wraps up this section of thought and gets ready to move on to a new section of thought in the coming verses, he gives us some insight into the nuts and bolts of how a person receives God's salvation. It will culminate in that verse so familiar to most of us, you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. All the power and the blessings and the relief and the promises and the eternal inheritance that we've been reading about since chapter 1, verse 1, they're all part of the fantastically generous work of a gracious God. It's all a gift held out to each human being on earth who can receive it by faith. What is faith? Uh, if, if we're talking about salvation and it's the most important thing, the most powerful thing, the most blessed thing, which Paul has been talking at some length about, he's been just overflowing with excitement about this whole salvation thing. And okay, well, how do I get it? He says, well, you receive it by faith. Well, then what is faith? We often, I think, default to thinking uh, that faith means I believe certain truths, Uh, But we have to understand that, biblically speaking, faith is more than just an intellectual recognition that God exists. Even the demons believe that and they tremble, right? And they're not going to be saved. There are plenty of things that I believe, quote unquote, but I don't care about at all. I believe that the clocks are three hours ahead on the East Coast. It makes absolutely no difference to me, even though I know it to be true. I believe that if I exercised more, I would be healthier and it would be better for me, but apparently I don't believe it enough to do it, right? So I I know that that it's true, and I maybe have even tasted and seen that exercise can be good, but I don't do it, (laughs) I, you know. The faith that lays hold of God's salvation is not like that faith that I just described, a faith that knows but doesn't care, or a faith that knows but doesn't apply, The Bible describes biblical faith, faith that lays hold of God's salvation, as something that we walk in, something that we live by. We're told that without this faith, it is impossible to please God. And in the passage where we hear that 
stark truth that without faith it is impossible to please God. The verses then go on to explain that a faithful person is one who not only believes that God exists, but draws near to him and obeys what God says as it is revealed to us. And so faith is this personal operative thing combining an intellectual assessment to, or uh, an intellectual agreement with what has been revealed alongside application and devotion in a true and trusting way. Klein Snodgrass writes, faith has an adhesive quality to it. It binds the believer to the one who is believed. Salvation does not come from believing ideas or an emotional decision, but from being bound to Christ. And this is why, as we go through the Bible, we can see that everyone is saved the same way. We have to understand that you and I are saved the same way that Abraham was saved, who was saved the same way that Paul was saved, who was saved the same way that David was saved. They believed, and it's accounted for them as as righteous. Now, the content of what they was revealed to them was completely different. Right? And so we go through the Bible and we see these different examples and we know that God is not a respecter of persons when it comes to how people are saved. You're saved the same way no matter what dispensation you find yourself in, uh, no matter what era of human history, what, no matter what side of the cross you live on. Uh, but the content of your faith is obviously going to be different whether you are a, uh, a person living in the 21st century with the completed inspired word of God available for you to read cover to cover and whether you're Abraham who doesn't know anything in a sense past Genesis 25, right? And so this is why you can see a person like Simon the sorcerer in Acts 8 believing, we're told, we're told that he believed. He believed certain ideas and yet it's very clear that he was not saved. He was not born again. And Peter rebukes him at one point and he says, man, you're about to go to hell. And we say, wait a minute, a few verses ago, we were told he believed. What does that mean? Well, his heart didn't stick to Christ. He intellectually agreed with certain truths, but his heart did not trust in the Lord. He did not adhere himself to Christ Jesus. And then on the other hand, we see Apollos in Acts 18. This man with great passion and zeal for Jesus, a fervency in the spirit, he's clearly saved, and yet we see that he needed to be instructed more accurately in the truth. So what's the difference? So you have the one guy who we're told, well, he believes things in his mind, and he's clearly not saved, and then you have Apollos who people had to pull him aside and said, hey, you, you think you know what's up, but you don't actually know the truth about God and the Holy Spirit and these sorts of things, and they, he needed to be taught more accurately the things of Jesus, but Apollos was bound to Christ in thought and deed and in heart, even though he lacked some significant knowledge that would be filled in by other believers and by more revelation as he walked with God. And so as Paul brings this section to a close, we should be really encouraged by the fact that we are able to exercise faith and encouraged to have a stickiness in our faith, sticking to the Savior, sticking to his plan for our lives as we grow in faith and in our strength and in our knowledge, but just adhering our hearts and our minds and the direction of our lives to our Lord and to his plan for us that is unfolding. So we begin in verse 6. He also raised us up with him, Christ Jesus, and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. 
So God the Father wants us to totally adhere to Christ both now and forever, right? We are a package deal. He never intends to have us live separate from the Son, right? Paul talks about us being in Christ and walking with Christ. Elsewhere, we're told things like, hey, let the mind of Christ be in you. This letter is going to talk about how you know, Christ is the head and, and the church is the body. And, and we see that God has a, 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 his desire is a total attachment between we Christians and Jesus Christ, not just for this part of life, but forever and ever, a total attachment. Uh, and he uses all of these different illustrations to help us see that that's the plan, like a bride and the bridegroom, like a a building built together with the cornerstone, like a body and a head and all of these different things. We have more of that now and not yet tension in verse 6 that we've seen before in these passages. Paul speaks in the past tense, right? We are already raised up. We're already seated with Christ. It's done. It's a matter of fact. There is no stopping this ultimate result, and that's a very good thing. That's great news. It's going to happen. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Of course, despite this being immutable fact, most of the time in this life, we feel far from this reality, right? Do you, do you in your day-to-day life walk around feeling uh, like you've been raised up in glory and seated in the heavens? Most of the time, I just feel congested from my allergies, right? I mean, but, you know, not trying to be facetious, we don't really feel feel this reality, which is why we go to the Word of God to remind ourselves of what is true, because we don't base life off of our feelings or based off of, you know, we don't, we don't have Disney theology, follow your heart, and your heart is always right. The Bible is the opposite. Your heart is always wrong. <laughs> your heart is desperately wicked. You can't even know what's going on in that thing. So, but we, we do admit that, okay, in my daily experience as I'm trying to walk with the Lord and I want to serve Him, I, I don't feel this kind of, of, and it doesn't feel like this has happened, and yet Paul says, it's done. So what's going on here? Well, we recognize that salvation is working out in the present as we progress toward the final fulfillment, which is most certainly going to happen. And so there is a process. Sometimes we refer to it as sanctification, right? There's an ongoing process as God works in our lives and draws us on and as we grow in maturity and all of these different things. That term raised is is defined by Strong's as being revivified spiritually in resemblance to the Lord. And of course, that reminds us of the fact that we are being conformed, it's an ongoing process, into the image of Christ the Son as God continually accomplishes his program of salvation in us. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a Christian here tonight, if you're born again, you're saved. It's done, right? You don't have to ripen to a certain level in order to get into heaven and be like, well, salvation was ongoing, but I didn't quite get there. I, I didn't get to the spiritual age of viability, and so I fell short last minute, right? That's, that's not the case. It's now and not yet, right? So, so Paul says, it is done. You are raised. Hey, by the way, this was something that the Lord has been working out from eternity past, all of these things that we've been seeing in these passages, but the process of it being accomplished is going on and on from now until glory day by day. Meanwhile, since God has raised us and seated us with Christ, that means a lot of things. It means that we have a spiritual authority now. 
means that we have every, every spiritual blessing now. It means that we have resurrection power now. It means we are no longer subject to death. We are dead to sin. We can overcome any temptation. We can resist the devil. We can walk uh, as children of light. Those things are all possible and should be the normal byproduct of the fact that we're saved. Now, we say, well, I still sin. Yeah, we do still sin because we're imperfect and we deal with the fallen nature within us. And Paul talks at length about this in Romans, you know, uh, uh, four, five, six in that section, right? But do we have to sin? No, we don't have to. The Bible is really clear that there is no temptation that is too great for you to escape, that God will always give you Christians an avenue of escape if you want to escape because that's the power he's given us and that's his desire for us. And so these things are true because we've been raised up with Christ and seated with him in the heavens. Verse six also has important ramifications for our lives, many of which Paul is going to explain in the coming chapters. Because we are raised up and seated with Christ, because this is true, because we have this positional reality in the spirit, Paul is going to explain how our relationships and our goals and our attitudes and the direction of our lives are going to be very different than the world around us and very different than what they were before we were believers. Paul said to the Colossians, since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Right, And the Bible tells us, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. Well, but I live here on the earth. That's right. But now that you are raised and seated with Christ, your perspective, your plans, your ideas, your goals, your attitudes, your worldview, it's all completely different. And it's all completely uh, calibrated and programmed by the Spirit of God who lives in your heart and has given you this newness of life. There's a total perspective shift a total change in the orientation of our lives because of the reality of our salvation. Verse 7 says, So that in the coming age, ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So God is going to put the church on display in eternity. Oh, we've referenced this a couple of times already but in previous studies, but this is just a mind-boggling revelation. And, and this verse has a lot of little encouragements tucked inside of it for us. The first piece of encouragement is that you, if you're a Christian, you are a display piece for the Lord. Some of you are collectors. Maybe you're a coin collector, stamp collector. Uh, uh, what's it called? Pokemon collector. I miss that. I don't understand it, but it happens. Some of the Pokemon cards are like tens of thousands of dollars, Right? holographic Charizard. Anybody have an original holographic Charizard here so I can become your friend? No? Okay. But some of you are collectors, and, or you might know a collector, and that collection might be quite large. But usually, in every collection, baseball cards, whatever it is, there's usually a piece or two, the crown jewel, the, the one, you know, the, the Babe Ruth, Ruth rookie card. Uh, the, the, the one that stands out, the one that if you had to get rid of the whole collection, but you could keep one, well, this is the one that I wouldn't part with. And for God, that is saved humanity. The crown jewel of all that he has done, all that he has made, all that he has designed, all that he has accomplished. Think of all the creatures, all the cosmos, all the expense, uh, expansive accomplishments that an all-powerful God could amass for himself. In eternity, he's going to say, okay, look at all that I have. 
seraphim and cherubim and all of these different things, right? And he's going to say, and here, here's the crown jewel. It's the church on display, the, the prize piece of my collection, you and me. And we can also see an important aspect of God's personality in this verse. He wants to display His kindness. If we were all powerful beings, based off of the hearts that we have, it's not kindness that we would put on display. We don't elect leaders who put kindness on display. We need a strong leader, right? We need a leader who will push the button, right? That, that's what we're looking at. Well, look, this is what's happening over here. And, and if, if, if we don't have a strong leader, then well, Russia's going to invade Ukraine and China's going to invade Taiwan and North Korea's going to be shooting off missiles. We need a strong leader who's willing to kill everybody, right? That's, that's, that's the idea, right, from the pundits. And God says, okay, here's what I want to do. I really want to display a, a certain aspect of my character and it's my kindness, Dane Ortland writes this, there is one place in the Bible where the Son of God pulls back the veil and lets us peer way down into the core of who he is, and we are not told he is austere and demanding in heart. We are not told that he is exalted and dignified in heart. No, letting Jesus set the terms, his surprising claim in that moment is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And we see here in our verse, the the Father's desire to display kindness forever and ever through us and to us. That's important too. God's not going to stop showing us kindness in eternity. We don't go in a glass case never to come out again. He's going to keep showing us kindness throughout eternity. But now we remind ourselves what Paul has already said, that Christ is the head, we are the body, empowered by God to what? Display Christ to a lost and dying world. And what do we see here? Remember, this is a letter that's read all at once. We take it a piece at a time. But a a, a few moments ago in the letter, we were told... Okay, you're the body of Christ, the fullness of of God working in the world. Okay, what does God want to display through his body? He wants his kindness in Jesus Christ on display. It's important to him. Kindness means love in tender action. Now, of course, Christ's love, his kindness was never uh, separate from, divorced from the truth or from calling sinners to repentance. It always included those things. But we want to take this reminder to heart. We are the body of Christ called to represent him in this world, called to imitate him as we live in our lives. Therefore, a faithful church and a faithful Christian will be tender and kind as they move through the world. Not perfectly, because we're still sinners. We're still being sanctified. But in a cultivated and growing, fruitful way, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, right? And so the Lord says, I want kindness on display for all eternity. And I'm doing this huge thing so that in all the coming ages, I can display the crown jewel of who I am and what I've done, and it is my kindness through Uh, through worthless sinners that I saved out of the gracious tenderness of my heart. Verse 8 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. What is God's gift? That's an important question. Scholars debate this. Is grace the gift? Is faith the gift? 
depending on what the gift is, it really impacts your doctrine. There are some Calvinistic interpreters that say the gift Paul is talking about is faith. Because remember, Ephesians 1 and 2 is a big battleground in the doctrinal debate over how people are saved. And so there are those who say, okay, Paul is saying faith is the gift. It it has absolutely nothing to do with you. You don't have free choice in the course of salvation. God puts faith onto you, and therefore you're saved whether you want to be or not. Now, by the way, this is not how John Calvin interpreted this verse, just so you know. Uh, he, he, he said, no, 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 the gift, even John Calvin, <laughs> the gift is salvation. Salvation is the gift. Contextually and grammatically, that's what Paul is saying. Salvation is the gift God gives. His point is that there is absolutely nothing a person can do to earn, merit, warrant, bid for salvation. Nothing. Every world religion is based on the idea that salvation is earned, right? I work off my debt. I show God I am worth saving. I tip the scales of morality towards the good rather than the bad. I claw my way into paradise through one effort or another and thereby receive salvation as a reward, you know, because I just ground it out. And I got it for myself. That's every world religion, every world philosophy. That's not Christianity. The opposite is true. No, there is no, there is no earning. There is no merit. There is no warrant. There is no bidding for salvation. Salvation is not won by keeping the law or being baptized or converting a certain number of people or speaking in tongues or by any other activity to show God how serious and how valuable you are. that's the opposite of what Paul has been saying in these chapters. No, salvation is a gift of grace offered to those who in no way deserve it and never could deserve it. For something to actually be a gift, it must be given just absolutely freely out of love and generosity, right? That's what a gift is. Now, we've all bought gifts for an event that we didn't want to go to, right? Right? have to buy a gift for that, right? Because this, this, is, this is life. We can be real, right? You, you've all bought a gift that you were like, I have to buy this gift because of society or because I'm going to this event or whatever, because, because it's the right thing to do, not because it's the thing I wanted to do. Well, those aren't gifts. Those are obligations, right? You didn't want to deal with the ramification of not bringing the toaster to the wedding, <laughs> Right? And so, and so you buy it, but that's not really a gift. You know in your heart it's not a gift, it's an obligation. God's gift of salvation is not like that. It's actually a gift, the purest gift, the richest gift, the most wonderful gift. It's something he wants to give. God gets such an unfair reputation in the world of being angry, of being, you know, uh, vengeful towards people and, and of, 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 you know, throwing lightning bolts down at them. God wants to give the gift of salvation to as many people who are willing to receive it. It's not, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why? I want you to have this gift. And the way a person receives it is through faith. Here's another quote about biblical faith. Faith is relying on something or someone believed to be reliable. Faith is relational, describing reliance on a reliable God. Faith is covenantal, expressing the commitment and trust that binds two parties 
together. That stickiness again. The Bible goes out of its way, by the way, to say that faith is not a work. Right? So there are those who will criticize the idea that people can exercise faith to receive salvation. They say, you think a, a person can exercise faith and receive salvation? That's a, that's a work. You're just saying that human beings performed a work and therefore received salvation. But that's not true. Romans 4 actually settles this issue very explicitly. Paul, right there on purpose, talks about how Faith is not a work, especially when it comes to receiving a gift. So, you know, if anyone ever says that to you, well, faith, that's a work. You, you believe in works-based salvation because you think human beings perform the work of faith, and instead it's all just God. God just dumps salvation on you, and you have nothing to do with it because it was determined in eternity past. Sorry, your, your friends or neighbors or family, they did not get it from eternity past, and what are you going to do? We should praise God for how great he is. But that's not true. And Paul specifically says, yeah, no, faith is not a work. And when you're receiving a gift by faith, that has nothing to do with working. Listen, if I did an Oprah Winfrey thing here tonight and I said, okay, everybody, everyone look under their seat and there's keys to a brand new car. You get a car and you get a car and you get a car, right? Would any of you, and and if you decided to take the keys and go, take your, you know, fleet of, I don't know, Yugos that I purchased from the, an old Soviet bloc surplus store, right? If you did that, would any of you leave this place saying, I in my power got myself a new car? Well, of course not. That would be silly. And it also wouldn't be true. It's also important for us to note that there is not a magical amount of faith that merits you salvation, right? So, well, how much faith do I have to have? You know, what level of faith do I, do I have to demonstrate in order for God to be, you know, you know, he's holding out the gift, but he goes, uh, 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 I don't know, oh, I don't know, right? There isn't some magical amount of faith. Listen, how much faith did the thief on the cross have, really? What did he know? What did he experience? He never served God. He didn't, you know, he barely knew Jesus' name. He met him that day. A few seconds before he believed, he was spitting blasphemies at the sinless son of God. But then he just, man, he stopped and he realized what was going on and he believed. And what did he say? His faith was very simple. He just said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's it. He knew so little, but it was enough. Why? Because he adhered himself to the Lord. He had a limited amount of revelation, but he responded to that and said, yeah, I believe in what has been revealed to me and I trust this Savior to save me. Our faith is meant to grow and deepen and strengthen. It's not that, well, I, I have base level faith and that was enough to get me through the door and then that's, that's it, that's good. No, our faith is, of course, meant to grow and deepen and strengthen and mature. But to receive the gift of salvation, the bar is pretty low. Thank the Lord, right? We remember how Jesus was blown away at how much faith a centurion had. He said, man, this is the biggest faith I've ever seen. I haven't seen this much faith in all of Israel, right? By the way, that would have included his, his, uh, you know, 12 disciples too. He's like, man, have you seen this guy? He's he's making you guys look really bad. (laughs) But it's not a competition, right? Uh, I remember in eighth grade, uh, science, our teacher set up an experiment to test lung capacity. It was one of those doohickeys where you blow and it lifts the ping pong ball up and, 
Everybody in the class did it. And because I'm so full of hot air, I won. I won, you guys. It was the only physical contest I've ever won in my life. But receiving salvation isn't dependent on having faith strong enough to hold up the ping pong ball for however long. Or as long as you, you know, outfaith the person next to you, okay, then you're in. We need to stop thinking about things that way. This is a gift offered to us generously, graciously by a God who wants to give it. William Arp writes, grace is the basic ingredient in God's dealing with mankind. Everything else comes from and builds on grace. So always remember that God is a lavish gift giver. He wants people to have salvation. Verse 9, not from works, so that no one can boast. No works, period. R. Kent Hughes says, if salvation came by works, eternity would spawn a fraternity of chest-thumping boasters and endless line of celestial Pharisees. But, man, Jesus, he, he would talk to the Pharisees very directly, and he would say, hey, your boasting's a problem. You're going the complete wrong direction. You're, you guys are not headed toward the kingdom unless you actually get saved. And many of them did get saved in the book of Acts, right? Just as salvation is not won by works, neither is it maintained by works. Now, in a moment, we're going to see that good works, spiritual works, are to be the focal point of our lives as we walk with the Lord. But you do not do works in order to hold on to salvation. God is the one who holds you tight in his grip of grace. Paul reminds us here of our fallen nature, right? That human propensity to boast and to class ourselves above other people. Ephesians has revealed that we're all equal. Equal in deadness, in trespasses and sins. And and it's going to go on saying, but now having been saved, there's still a great spiritual equality. He's going to show how we're all equal in God's sight, Jew and Gentile, you know, slave and free. And we're all equal recipients of, of his love and his grace and his power. And so Christians and churches should never become boasters in ourselves or anything we've done. This is why we are sensitive at Calvary to not become numbers people. And it's hard. We live in an age of analytics, an age of data, an age of numbers and metrics and measurements and things like that. But it's very hard to not cross the line into boasting about what we've done, what we've accomplished, uh, what we think is great about ourselves. But it's wholly inappropriate for Christians to boast in that way. What does the word say? It says, so let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. For it is not the one commending himself who's approved, but the one the Lord commends. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. The word workmanship means masterpiece. What an astonishing thing to consider. Uh, One of the commentaries pointed this out. I thought it was so great. The, the, The stars, the heavens, the planets in orbit, those are God's handiwork but you are God's masterwork. Wow. I was looking up, you know, I like space stuff. I was looking up, the biggest star we know of is something like you could put five billion of our suns into this star. It has some weird dumb name like UY Scooty or something like that. I don't know, get a real name. But so we are the masterwork of God, Christians. A born-again Christian is a magnificently unique creation. In fact, they alone are the double created, the twice-baked potatoes of the spiritual world. No, twice-baked potatoes are maybe the greatest food ever made behind Doritos, right? Fight me about it all you want. 
all serious, in all seriousness, look, first, as a human being, you are created in the image of God. Human beings are not animals. We need to get that idea out of our head. Human beings, every single one of them, is a special creation set apart from all other creatures, both natural and supernatural. But then to be born again means you are made into a new creation, a double creation, the second birth. And that brings you into this masterpiece category. The term Paul uses here uh, for workmanship also means work of art. Salvation is more than a cleanup, more than a remodel, more than a repurposing, more than an upgrade. It is the greatest work of the greatest artist. Once while Michelangelo was pounding away on a great shapeless rock, Someone asked him what he was doing. His reported answer was, I'm liberating an angel from this stone. What a great perspective. In a much more profound way, God is shaping us. He's liberating us from the effects of sin and death and our fallen nature, chipping away those rough edges, bringing life where there was death, bringing out the image of his son through our lives in a beautiful, meticulous, artful way. That work sometimes takes a great deal of time. Michelangelo took three years to carve his statue of David, right? The most, the most famous work of art in, in the world, maybe, arguably, the David statue. Took him three years to do it. I learned this week that he wasn't originally hired for the job. In fact, he was the third guy hired for the job. We don't know why the first guy quit, but the second guy quit because he took a look at the block of marble that was set aside for this for this sculpture, and he said the quality was too poor to work with, he quit. And he says, I can't work with this marble, it's too junky. And then Michelangelo comes along, he says, I can liberate David from this block of, uh, from this slab of marble. Between the second guy and Michelangelo, the slab sat out in the elements for like decades, 25 years. Finally, Michelangelo took up the chisel. A number of years later, an Italian artist and biographer described Michelangelo's work on David as, quote, the bringing back to life of one who is dead. And that's what the Lord is doing for us in salvation and keeps doing. He's doing it because he wants to put us on display as the masterpiece of his art. But unlike the David statue, we're made for more than standing in a room somewhere. Paul closes the section by telling us what we were created for. And he says, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. So we're not saved by works, but we are definitely saved for works. God says he has special activities for each of us, things he's planned specifically for us to discover and accomplish as we walk with him. Okay, so does that mean I have some weird checklist that I have to get through, a spiritual to-do list in order to be a good Christian, in order to graduate into heaven? New King James renders this phrase, created for good works that we should walk in them. International Standard Version puts it this way, works to be our way of life. So God isn't giving us quotas. He's giving us a new life to live. This is what you do now. Instead of bearing the fruit of the devil that we saw last time, you bear the fruit of the Spirit. So how do I discover these particular plans God has prepared beforehand for me? Hebrews 13 tells us that the God of peace will shepherd us and equip us with every good, everything good, excuse me, to do his will. As we walk with the Lord, sticking closely to the heart of our Savior and his mind and his word, we discover where he wants to lead us and which opportunities he has set aside specifically for us. 
And so Paul encourages us to walk in this new life, to have a sticky faith that understands more and more what salvation really is, and then responds by adhering ourselves to Christ and staying on the path he has placed us on, to walk out of our graves of sin and shame and temptation and walk in the newness of that resurrection power. Sometimes I forget that when Jesus rose from the dead, Matthew 27 tells us that there were a number of saints who also rose at the same time and came out of their tombs and went into Jerusalem appearing to many people. What a great work for them to do. Imagine if they would have said, I'm good, I'm just gonna hang out in my tomb. I'm just gonna roll in my tomb until I die again. <laughs> what a waste that would have been. No, they were raised and came out for a good work. Many of you are fans of the movie Elf, Christmas classic. Remember that sad moment when Buddy has his Etch-A-Sketch and he has the itinerary all planned out of the things he wants to do with his dad? He, he has it because he loves his dad and just wants to spend time with him and do special things with him. And what does his dad do? It's early in the movie, so they haven't, you know, he hasn't had the change of heart yet. His dad just dismisses him and he says, I'm good, uh, you know. He says, I gotta go to work, Buddy. And then sadly, Buddy shakes his at your sketch and is all sad. And, and as viewers, like, we're heartbroken because we're like, no, just you spend your time together, Dad. Don't go to work and do your, you know, your rat race thing. Be in this relationship and enjoy uh, this opportunity. So the Lord has plans for us that flow from his kindness and grace and affection and tenderness for, for us. He's been making plans about things he wants to do in and through us since eternity past. And Paul gives us this perspective and he says, listen, here's what God's been doing for you since before time began. Here's what he's doing now. Here's a certain goal he's going to bring you to. And so stick to the Savior. Stick to the plan. You may feel like you only have a teaspoon of faith, but that is enough because it is God who works his power through you. What we have to do is receive the grace he wants to give. Submit ourselves to this ongoing process of salvation and he will finish his masterwork in us.